Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. Thea is away this week, but fear not. Returning to the show is the arts editor of the paper, still a token northerner, thankfully, Lucy Dallas. Lucy, over the last few times you've been on, we came to know you as a lady with a formidable track record, including the fact you never read the TLS, you were in a semi-successful indie band, you nearly collaborated with Kurt Cobain, and you are and remain, I believe, a very good opera singer. Do you have anything to declare this week? Only that. I was not the source of, I think, almost any of these stories, and at least one of them is definitely not true. Which Probably one? more than one. I'm not telling you, you have to guess. Okay. At least one. Nothing else to but declare? But hello, anyway. Yeah, no, no other stories to, to tell? <laughs> I have nothing to declare, no. Oh, OK. OK. One of the things Thea always reminds me to do here is say, if you like this podcast, please do give us a review on iTunes. If you want to leave humorous, adoring or testy comments, please do so and we will read them out. Coming up on the show, we're recording this podcast the day after the night before of the American election. The TLS has run a number of pieces on this momentous, often horrendous political event, including by Richard Ford and Elaine Showalter, both of whom appeared on this podcast earlier. And so it's fitting that we reflect its outcome and, and we're lucky enough to have Mary Beard in America at the moment, the classics editor of the TLS, public intellectual extraordinaire, to reflect on the fact that Donald Trump is now president-elect of the United States of America. Mary will be joining us shortly to tell us what it's like to be in America for its democratic carnival. But we'll also reflect other parts of the cultural landscape to this podcast. Indeed, the landscape full stop. Nick Groom has reviewed the latest nature literature, which all embodies the concept of rewilding. We should be getting our hands dirty with him and also some royalty. Television has again seemed to fall in love with the concept of the British royal family, including Queen Victoria. Mark Bostrich has reviewed the latest biography of her, which seeks to assess her conflicting roles as queen and as a woman. But first to the new leader of the free world, the person in whose office is embodied Western democracy, the most significant global power player of them all. Yes, it is Donald Trump. In America this week, we've seen the election of a man who was, to many, the very acme of impropriety, of unsuitedness to the role of leadership, a misogynist who legitimised misogyny, a builder of walls, a condemner of the innocent, a bumbler, a bankrupt. But to others, he was the symbol of change, of disruption, of a recognition that the status quo could not and should not endure, a figure who mobilised those left behind by globalisation, a hero to a large group 
group of working-class men and women. So after two terms of a black president, we now have a president for whom just 8% of black people voted and one who's endorsed by the Ku Klux Klan. What does it feel like in America right now? What parallels can we draw with this momentous event? Well, Mary Beard, classics editor, public intellectual, joins Lucy and me from New York. Mary, hello. Well, actually, I'm in New Haven, Connecticut. New Haven, not New York. But you are there and you can answer a simple question. What the hell is going on over there? It's quite hard for me to say because uh, I have to confess that, that since the result came out, I haven't actually moved from my hotel room or actually <laughs> even my bed. But what I have been doing is really binging on uh, American television. The reactions to it, I think, are really depressing because you have you know, the gloating, slightly gloating quality of the Fox News. But it's when people from the liberal left come on that I find it, I think, even more gloomy. Because either it is you get a whole series of you know righteous indignation coming out. How could you know? How could this have happened? You know, this man is you know you know a dreadful misogynist. Everything, everything we all agree with, but it just kind of being represented now in a kind of hand-wringing way. Or the other side, and this was partly prompted, I think, by his acceptance speech. The other side of the left's view appears to be saying, well, OK, I mean, it is all dreadful, but it's not going to be quite as bad as we all thought. Because look how decent he was about Clinton. Look how bridge building he was in his acceptance speech. Somehow I find that even even more depressing. Everyone in the world will have heard his acceptance speech, but what it was was a auto-cue written clearly by someone else, a an attempt to be statesman-like. It was a series of quite bland propositions about how he is magically going to build infrastructures, <laughs> grow the economy, do all sorts of things, uh, but done in a very neutral tone. And also, crucially, that he would be the president of all Americans, all races, all creeds, all beliefs. I mean, that's what I thought was was so scary, because he, he went out of his way to, to say that how sincerely he felt uh, Secretary Clinton's services to the, um, to the United States, how great they had been. Uh, and he said, I mean this. <laughs> and, and then he talked about uh, healing wounds. And I thought, yesterday, he was wanting to impeach the woman. He was calling her crooked Hillary. And the one thing he was doing with the wounds that you might see in American political life, well, Trump was the guy who was putting the knife in. Now, there's, there's something awful about statesman-like behaviour when it's clearly what you've been told to do, make a statesman-like acceptance speech, when it's so flagrantly the polar opposite of what you've been saying for months and months and months. Now, at that point, you know, I don't think it's gracious. I think what it's doing is showing that political language isn't meaning anything. I mean, you've written a couple of pieces. You've written a piece for us, uh, which is uh, on the website now, but you, you wrote a piece a couple of months ago about sort of demagoguery and the rise of the demagogue, which really was a meditation effectively on how much we now challenge political speech to to insist that it has genuine meaning. And do you think this election has become, in, in a sense, an embodiment of that, that political speech, we no longer, perhaps as the Athenians did, I think is the example that you might that you used, we no longer really interrogate political speech or insist on it having general meaning. We accept that it doesn't. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, uh, I think that's really clear to me. I mean, just think how easily the 350 million quid a week, whatever it was, that figure, has just 
been shrugged off and nobody really minds very much. And I think that what you see if you go back to the ancient world, and it's something that um, I don't often think we can learn from the ancients, but we perhaps can hear, you know, what Greeks and Romans were really concerned about was what a politician said and how far you could trust what someone said when they spoke to the people. You know, are they speaking the truth? Do they believe what they're saying? And what's the danger of a political system that's based on rhetoric that can be conscripted to any cause, whatever? And we seem not to have, you know, really not to have grasped that recently. And I, I think it, it's somehow connected too, I think, with what Gove said about experts and what's clearly been part of the Trump campaign, that it's about speech meaning anything you want it to mean, combined with knowledge being something that really equates with elite privilege, not with the basis of any good political decision making. I kind of think it's the nihilism that postmodernism takes you to, because at one point you, you, you get to a, a relatively healthy point where you're questioning authority, you're testing meaning all the time, which is healthy. But if you take it to its logical conclusion, no meaning sustains itself, there is no expertise, there is no uh, accepted knowledge. And actually that whole approach to the world, the very modern attitude to the world, destroys itself because you effectively say nothing means anything, therefore anyone can say anything. And it's, it, it's quite difficult to argue this from the point of view of someone like me because very quickly if I go down that route someone pops up and says ha ha so you're just you know you just want philosopher kings you're you know you're a platonic fascist then you don't want the people to but express their views and to be in control you want you know the academic intellectual elite to be running the country I don't want that but I, I think that you can't throw the you know the baby of knowledge out with that particular bathwater, really. And it's, it's sometimes, you, you see it rather clearly and, and in a way more easily, I think, in, if you look at, say, underlined comments on articles you've done online. And qu quite often you find people joining in, and I, I think that's great. You know, there is a certain democratisation of comment. And they will have a go at, say, Alexander the Great with me, and I, they might say that they disagree and we have a long discussion you know and eventually you find them saying well i think this and you know i my views as good as yours on alexander the great and at that point i do have to stop myself saying look who's the professor of ancient history right <laughs> right now yeah. it's a bit like that magnified you know in terms of political expertise you know we want to share debate we want a good quality of debate we want to have um people joining in but actually in the end somebody's got to know something well and it's that's why we elect the politicians because they're the people who are supposed to be doing the work and looking into it and making informed decisions would you have been happier this is a kind of slightly weird counterfactual if trump had come out and said yeah, we did it. And, you know, I don't care. I, You know, my heartland got me in and I don't care about anybody else. Do you know if he had made a sort Let's of... Let's build the wall. Yeah, if he had done a very rabble-rousing kind of, to, to you know, to, to, to the Liberal side of things, sort of terrifying speech, would you have preferred that because it would have been more truthful? It, you know, it's a bit of a tough option, but in mm. some ways there is a kind of... It, it doesn't have the dishonesty 
that uh, the kind of guff that we've just seen. If words have got to mean things, then sometimes you have to hear words meaning things you don't want them to mean. You know, and maybe it'd be better to you know see him saying, "I've already put the order for the bricks in," and you know. But the problem is, though, is, is there not that Trump exists and President Trump exists because there's a large swathe of people for whom the world has not been successful, for whom globalisation, the modern world, the process of, of, of the way civilised Western countries have developed has left them behind. And that's why you get a rate, uh, the anger that leads to Trump. So it, in some ways, we have to reflect on the honesty of his position, whatever he says in, in speeches, is linked to a view that Clinton is part of the elite, the elite has let down America, and people need any form of alternative. And even if it is Trump, there is, there's, a, there's a hard truth to learn there as well, though, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I think we all, um, particularly those of us who, you know, have some kind of public voice and you know have some privilege we have to face up to the fact that there are a whole lot of people out there who feel left behind and actually it's one of those cases i think where you know feeling left behind is the same as being left behind i mean in in some ways one wants to say look globalization isn't the problem there are all kinds of other issues which are underlying all this but the fact that people feel it is means that it is the problem and you know, I think that the liberal left could do well to be, you know, a little less indignant and to look at that kind of dissatisfaction in the eye. Well, one point that you make, we have to leave it here, but how important is this to the lives of, of people? Because in the piece you've just written for us, you say, however sadistic or bonkers Caligula or Nero might have been, which are in some ways apparent parallels to Trump, for most people, things went on much as usual. And so as with Brexit, so with Trump, it's very easy for people to just to, to paint an apocalyptic scenario here but actually a president trump like a bit like an emperor nero at one level might be terrifying but for 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 many people life will go on regardless yes that is you know one of the happy laws of politics isn't it we know all too well from our general elections that um, you know things don't change much and i think actually that is the difference there is a big difference between the kind of irrevocable decision that brexit represents and the very very foolish choice of a president with views that i find abominable i mean at least you know he can can be got rid of that that's true and he can be got rid of and 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 the institutions will remain the same things will go on the same in the sense that there will be shops open and you know the sun will rise but surely the the government what it can do is affect large numbers of people and can make their lives considerably worse and it can be argued that that's going to happen pretty quickly if he deports 11 million people you know if lots and lots of people don't have jobs then it won't be as usual it may well be much worse than usual it depends a bit on how resilient the institutional framework is and how far Trump can do what no Roman emperor ever really could do, which is sit there in the Oval Office and make what are our nightmares come true. Mary, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us and and, and for writing uh, the piece, which by the time this podcast uh, comes out will be on our website. And I think with all these things, the answer is you have to see what happens. I mean, the world isn't going to end tomorrow. Donald Trump is going to be in the White House in January. The institution is designed, the constitution and the institution of American policy is designed to withstand any person in the White House, one would imagine. So we'll have to see how much damage he can do. Suck it and see. Exactly. Mary, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I feel relatively phlegmatic 
about this because there's lots I mean I don't want to change you're not going to change your mind or I'm not going to change my mind on him as the person and as a as the figure he's presented because it's perfectly legitimate whether he's voted in or not to reflect upon his character the things he's said the anger that he's fostered and those concerns will persist but on the flip side one has to then judge him by the actions of his government which you can only see when they happen sure but if we think that his government is going to do the things he said it was going to do however vague they were i um, are you gloomy lucy is that what you're saying i'm worried <laughs> yeah i mean and, and again mary's absolutely right for a lot of people it will be things will go on as usual but that's not the point is it i mean the point of the government that he said i'm going to be for all americans the same way that the you know theresa may said i'm going to going to work for all the people but let's see shall we let's see if you do. i mean the other thing that's worth pointing out is that because republicans control both houses he has an extraordinary amount of power exactly. well actually the power now resides in some ways on the republican party from which he was always rather distant whether they will act as his servants or as a check and balance on him i think will be a, will be an interesting sort of political struggle as well yeah but even them, there's there's a lot of um, ideologues there who will be only too delighted. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Uh, we're going to leave the glossy madness of American democracy to go to the no less bemusing world of British royalty. If cinematic and televisual portrayal of the royal family is any indicator of its health, we may be living in a golden age of regal celebration. Netflix has just released The Crown, written by Peter Morgan about the early reign of the current Queen Elizabeth to wide acclaim. But the British monarch most frequently portrayed on screen is Queen Victoria. This year we have seen ITV's glossy Victoria and Stephen Frears is set to give us Victoria and Abdul, a proper feature film. And not coincidentally, one imagines, a new biography has been published. By Julia Baird, it is entitled Victoria the Queen, an intimate biography of the woman who ruled an empire, and is a novelistic attempt to examine the perpetual conflict between Victoria's role as a woman as well as a queen. Well, Mark Bostridge has reviewed the book and joins Lucy and me now. Hi, Mark. Hi. You raised this uh, question in, in the review, the tension between her, sort of her role as a woman and her role as a queen. Is that something she became more comfortable with conflating as she got older, do you think? I suppose so. I mean, the problem, of course, for the early part of the reign is, is she's saddled with having nine children um, between 1840 and 1857. And then unlike so many of her contemporaries, she, she never lost a child. She never miscarried a child. Um, and what she does, of course, is she, she really invents the idea of domestic monarchy. And although in the, at the end of the 1860s, Walter Badgett is arguing that the idea of a family on the throne would, would bring down the pride of sovereignty to the level of petty life. There's no doubt that one of the things that makes the British monarchy survive in, in the last part of the 19th century is that there is this, this family supporting the monarch. Mark, one of the things I was interested in, about in, when you're talking about the, the family situation is that even her obstetrician, who was at the births of all her children, thought it was very distasteful how frank she was about talking about her body and how, how indelicate she was, which is not how we think of her at all. As Julia Baird, I think, makes the point, Albert is much more of the personification um, of the Victorian age. He's industrious, earnest, forward-looking, moralistic. I mean, Victoria is much more of a Hanoverian. And one of the great things about Victoria, and I think the reason why she has been portrayed so often on stage and on screen, is that she's so candid and so outspoken uh, about what it's like to be a monarch, what it's like to be a queen, what it's like to be a, a mother and a wife while being a queen, not only in her lifetime, when, I mean, after all, she authorized 
a biography of the Prince Consort not long after his death called The Early Years of the Prince Consort. And, of course, then she publishes her, her letters or her leaves from the Highland. But the, the letters and the journals that have come down to us, that came down to us after her death, tell us more about what it was like to be a monarch than, than any other monarch in history. You refer, or Baird in, in her book refers and tries to sort of whip up a bit of controversy around Victoria and the loyal gilly John Brown. Your view is that she doesn't do so entirely successfully. You don't think there's any more scandal attached to this that she can reveal than we already knew, which was she had a close but not sexually intimate relationship with John Brown. No, I, 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 I wasn't taken in by what she said at all. I mean, she didn't really seem to say anything more than what people have been saying for years, which is, as you say, that... I, I, I imagine there was a physical closeness between John Brown and Queen Victoria, which is why even the present royal family gets slightly... I, I think Jane Ridley, who wrote a very good short book on Victoria in the New Penguin series, said that Princess Margaret, I think, had tried to step in at one point and stop some John Brown material coming out. So they're obviously still very sensitive about it. But I don't think that Julia Baird any, adds anything as substantive to, to what we know already. Well, let, let's get into that, because I, I think the, the sort of the kicker of your review, something that interests me quite a lot, is the, about the, how the royals approach their archives. Yeah. Most historians, as you say, kind of have to truckle and scrape the knee to get any sort of access to the royal archives, which at one level seems to be a total disgrace to me. But even then, they're often thwarted. And the royal family seems to see this sort of have this desire to block any unfavourable item. I mean, why is it not a, an important part of a principle for a country like Britain that the royal archives, after a period of say thirty years, are automatically widely open to everybody? Well, they they should be. I mean, I think part of the problem is that the royal archives are governed by that anti-diluvian institution, um, the royal household. Um, and we don't really know how material is transferred to the Royal Archives. I mean, we have no idea about, you know, papers, for instance, relating to Prince Charles and the Princess of Wales in the 80s. We don't know what's actually landed up in the Royal Archives. I mean, there is a, there is a problem because there is a, a dividing line between what is, what is obviously public material and should be made publicly available and what is private to, to the individual the individuals that make up the royal family, but even even that isn't isn't clear. I don't think. Well, is it, I mean, for instance, the Queen keeps a journal. Now, is she going to allow? Um, you know, is she going to provide in her will for possible dissection of that journal by historians a hundred years from now? We just don't know. That's why I think, uh, uh, after a certain remove of time, can Queen Victoria, a person constitutionally representative of the public, whose entire existence is connected? to serving the public, can she be said to have a private life at all, particularly once dead? And, and the answer to that must be no, mustn't it? That once, once she dies and a certain period of time has elapsed, everything is fair game for historians to look at. Yes, I, I think that's true. I mean, I think one of the, uh, the, the shocking things that Julia Baird reveals, because I, I've known many historians who've worked in the Royal Archives who've had terrible stories of what they've been asked to leave out. What Julia Baird, who is an Australian journalist, has said is that she was asked to remove material about John Brown that she hadn't even found in the Royal Archive. She found in, an, in another archive, um, and the Royal Archives had insisted on reading her, her manuscript before publication, and they said, remove this. And she quite rightly refused to do so. So I think that there should be far more openness, but I think the first step would be to take the Royal Archives out of the hands of the Royal Household and put them in some national uh, national archive institution the national archives there should be some kind of committee set up to to deal with 
the papers relating to the royal family. The whole royal family's basis is their connection to the members of the public for which, in regards to which they have a sort of constitutional relationship. And who pays for them. And pay, I, I don't, this is not about a Republican point, but it's a point that they are in the same way as the government. The go- Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. They're similar to the government, aren't they? After the 30-year rule is elapsed, it should be something that's accessible to historians who have a proper sense of, of trying to put together what happened. Well, I, I suppose some of the material that the, the Royal Archives currently withholds, for instance, Queen Victoria's fourth daughter, Louise, who was very artistic, clearly had a, a very... Um, rocky private life um, and the Royal Archives have always refused to surrender any material relating to this princess. Now you might argue that that is, I, I mean enough time has elapsed, Princess Louise died in 1939, <laughs> in, uh, 1939 I mean who on earth cares but I mean I suppose you could argue that there is no national reason to know what the sort of salient details of Princess Louise's private life but I mean when you come for instance to the Prince and Princess of Wales in the 1980s do we have a, how much do we have a right to know about what went on um, in the war, um, the so-called War of the Waleses, as it was called then? I mean, I guess the, the other way of looking at it is we don't... What's the reason to prevent us from knowing about the private life of someone who died in 1939 who was a member of the royal family? It seems you'd almost need to have to actively formulate a reason not to have it. The presumption should be of of sharing, perhaps. But just just finally, then, we're going to have to leave it here, Mark, but Victoria herself, do you think she's become more of an icon over the last couple of years? Why is, it, why is her time now? Why do you think ITV are doing this? Um, there's this new film coming out. Why are we returning to Victoriana or Victoria herself? I, I, I mean, I don't think we're returning. I think the, the ITV series is, is very dull and very boring and rewrites history quite a lot. And that clearly is just a sort of replacement for, for Downton Abbey. I think the Stephen Frears film, which, which sounds very interesting about Victoria's relationship with Abdul Karim at the end of her life, um, he too is, is, is returning to very fertile territory because, of course, there was a film before starring Judi Dench, who's also in this new film, 
um, Judi Dench um, as Queen Victoria in a film about John Brown. So I think Queen Victoria has never gone away. I mean, since the 1930s, there has been a constant stream of plays, eventually television and film about her. And I think, obviously, the present Queen will probably, in the end, overtake her great-great-grandmother. But um, for the moment, I think we'll still see lots of Queen Victoria on the screen. Well, Mark, thank you very much for, for reviewing this. And also, I think the point you make about the Royal Archives in the piece is, is really important and interesting. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Should, should I stop chuntering about this Royal Archive thing? Just, no, I, I, I find it absolutely extraordinary. If, it, if, it were, if there was this much secrecy and sort of vetting about governmental matters, everybody would be... Outrage, wouldn't they? They'd be absolutely outraged, and and I know, I, I know that I was ungraciously going on about us paying for them, but we really do. Well, we do. Yeah. <laughs> they, don't, they don't get to just, you know, if it's about, if it, especially if it, it is about matters of state, which for Victoria, you could argue that the royal family. I mean, Mark's saying, do we have a right to know about Charles and Diana? I think that's a different point because that is very much their private life. And in, and Charles is still alive. Yeah. I mean, and the, Queen Victoria, she she was deeply involved with the government, wasn't she? I mean, she was... The, well, of course she was. Yeah. But I, also the personal lives of royal family, when they're dead, I think cease to be private. In, even at, I mean, you can make an argument when they're alive that this is true, but certainly when they're dead, they enter the historical record. They're, it's a bit like saying talking about Henry VIII's letters to Anne Boleyn is an intrusion into their privacy because they're private correspondence. No one would possibly suggest that with a straight face. No one say, you can't read a letter written by Henry VIII yep. to Anne Boleyn because it's private. And this control of the royal family, of the archive is outrageous isn't it well I, you just think that if you if you know if you're a member of the royal family now and you've got a diary and you don't want people to read it burn it yeah and then everything else is a matter of public record well, or give it you know give it to your son or daughter with strict instructions i don't know it, it it's mystifying to me i think also the i absolutely take his point about the the, the downton abbey I mean, there's now a new replacement for it, which is the the crown. crown. I was thinking that yeah. that that this queen. I'm sure Mark's right. She is catching up because there's been the crown, and before that there was the film, the queen, and there was the play, the audience. The film was also a play. The, there are these numerous glossy representations of how absolutely marvellous everyone it's is. It's just a shorthand for British poshness, isn't it, the royal family? And if there's a bit of a renaissance in that a la Downton Abbey, the royal family is just a really easy way of, of, of signifying that. I can even understand sort of serving it up to everybody else, but serving it up to us again. From the decorousness of royalty to the untrammeled wildness of nature, Nick Groom has reviewed three books for the TLS this week, The Running Hair by John Lewis Stemple, A Natural History of the Hedgerow by John Wright, and Field Notes from the Edge by Paul Evans. Taken together, they examine the rather in-vogue idea of rewilding, the process of restoring to our technology-saturated consciousness a proper emphasis and understanding of the natural world. According to Groom, the books give us, respectively, John Lewis Stemple retro-farming a field of wheat, John Wright rootling about in hedges, and Paul Evans in rapt communion with the fairy folk. They all make a powerful argument for appreciating the richness and the oddness of our natural world, taken at the local, even the humdrum level. If, as Groom says, echophobia is a nightmare from which we're trying to awake, recognising the sometimes strange, sometimes beautiful around us might be a necessary start. 
We've decamped to a small airless studio and Nick joins <laughs> Lucy and me now in it. Nick, thanks so much for coming in. It felt like your favourite book of the three was the Paul Evans one, Field Notes from the Edge. What did you like about it? Yes, I think that, uh, that the Evans uh, book is, is, is remarkable in the way that it re-enchants the everyday. Um, he is an enraptured romantic um, and he reminds us that there's actually nothing wrong with that. I know that Kathleen Jamie, for example, criticised Robert McFarlane for, for wandering around um, in the countryside as if he were uh, with Wordsworth. But what Evans does is it shows that it is possible... Um, to really reconnect imaginatively with the environment and not necessarily with these huge sublime vistas uh, that, that in fact did uh, so bewitch uh, romantic and post-romantic poets but with as you said yourself with the humdrum with the everyday with the domestic uh, with the tiniest things and he can really open up the magic um, and the infinite imaginative possibilities uh, within those experiences one, one of the striking things uh, we'll talk a bit about the specifics that you talking about that, that uh, reading the TLS over the last couple of months we've had a couple of nature pieces and one of the things that was very striking is some of those romantic visions were actually man-made the notion of sort of sheeps cropping a bleak moorland isn't a sign of nature in its wondrous glory but a sign of how man-made agriculture has changed the natural world well that's that's quite true certainly um, the landscape of England in particular um, has nothing in inverted commas, wild um, about it. It's been farmed for centuries and centuries, even those protected spaces uh, in the national parks, like the Lake District of Dartmoor, which is which is where I live, have been farmed and over-farmed, and they're really um, derelict uh, uh, brownfield sites. Uh, but, you know, they are now presented um, as if they are havens uh, for nature and conservation. But I think that the important thing is it, it's, it's getting that um, sense of enchantment, uh, that sense of uh, the unusual usual um, and the surprising and the captivating back into what we tend to take for granted and one of the ways I think that Evans does this is he's very locally distinctive he's not interested in a in a homogenized way of thinking about the environment you know he's talking about specific instances and experiences that happen on his country walk so this is very highly localized and it's getting that sort of idea of getting back to this sense that everywhere is different and it's important to maintain that sense of of, of, of locality and these are the things that then bring people together these are the things that make communities resilient and adaptive and give them a character which they can then take forward i think is it true that it's also that's very dependent on the nature of the writing because the danger is then it's just it's somebody going for a walk i mean he'd better write about it interestingly if he's going to to be engaging and captivating because if it if that doesn't fire the imagination you know there's the, the people could just say well you know i've been for a walk as well <laughs> yes of course I mean, he, he is a writer going for a walk I think that he is influenced by Blake, uh, but there's also a De Quincey quality mm. to his symphonic um, prose. Um, it's it's easy. Um, it's it's actually deceptively um, easy. One gets carried along in the tide of his writing, and it's shot through with the supernaturalism, um, and that, that's really what I what I found um, so compelling. Give us an example of that. I think that's that's fascinating because we are talking about the natural as we say, in the local almost humdrum, but he actually brings to it a sense of the supernatural. That's, that's, that seems like something of a paradox on the face of it. 
He does. Well, he, he describes spume, for example, in a, in a seaside um, town, uh, which is this sort of strange uh, foam, and, um, and talks about a couple being covered in it. And then he shifts into a, into a horror movie, or even a Lovecraftian mode, where he describes them as being contaminated or impregnated, because they've got this stuff on their hands and on their anoraks and so forth. And this really then begins to colour the whole experience of, this, of the scene, the seaside town becomes necrophiliac and so the whole thing gets this very sinister luster attached to it the same way he talks about things being washed up um, on the coast again I mean he's talking about um, these uh, familiar and, and popular references to people like people like Lovecraft and um, it also then introduces interesting little snippets of natural history about the size, for example, of a lion's mane um, jellyfish, the largest one recorded actually being larger than a blue whale. Also the bootlace worm, which is in this, this extraordinarily long and toxic creature. So the stuff is there. It's yeah. actually around our coasts. It's on our beaches. It's on those country walks. Um, it's in literally a nutshell uh, that, he, that he finds and peers inside. And that's really what his prose does his prose, his prose ignites those sorts of possibilities he really sort of shines this sort of extraordinary light into that is it also about the quality of attention that you give to it in in the sense that as i would say rather flippantly anyone can go for a walk but you can walk past as i say you can walk past things on the beach or walk past a nutshell and go yeah i know what that is but actually what is that what you're saying that if you look closely and he looks closely and and talks about it beautifully and you talk about the fungus that that's the it's bioluminescent and he yes. kind of weaves all sorts of but and, but and that is an amazing thing it does they do it does look very spooky and he kind of explores that he's very very alive to that he's fey in the proper sense yeah. of, of of that doominess that, that he's he's always he's always got one foot as it were um, in 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 fairy in in Elfland. Now, when I don't want to sound too fey myself, talking about this, but there is something extraordinary when you open your eyes. When you're on a what you see something like a fly agaric mushroom, uh, like I did with uh, with my children the other day, and they are uncanny. They are extraordinary, mm. um, and you want to step back and actually use this um, as material for for thinking, for imagining. Can I ask? You, one of the criticisms of nature writing is that that I call it the, sort of the haggling of crows problem. That that you eat. <laughs> <laughs> um, rightly urge to insert metaphor and not just on Evans on all of them did, did they avoid that because when you are talking about the natural world the temptation to sort of take a step back haul up your slacks and really show what a writer you are I think must be there all, all the time um, and what you're describing with Evans isn't really that that's more bringing in sort of cultural references and being a, a, a alive to the oddness but do you get in any of the books a sense that sometimes nature writing can look a bit like showing off. Well, it can look a bit like showing off, and for all the, the great new nature writing that there is, and there are some wonderful works, um, there's, there's a lot of dross as well um, about sort of people just doing this um, third-rate Robert McFarlane um, stuff. That is a danger, but I think that it is important to have a go at it because the encounter with nature, with the countryside, with the landscape is metaphorical and it is cultural. And I think that the best writers are ones that are really alive um, to that. There isn't some unmediated relationship or connection or perception there's, there's no scientific or absolutely objective 
or quantitative relationship with our environment. We have to recognise the importance of culture. Culture is at the heart of this. And so I think the best writers do draw in uh, Wordsworth, for example, or D.H. Lawrence, or, or Beowulf, um, or, or H.P. Lovecraft. Um, you know, we have to get this sense um, of cultural environmentalism back into ecological thinking and make sure, particularly, that the, the bioscientists, the meteorologists, um, the conservationists are really aware that this engagement is primarily a cultural engagement. That's how we make sense of it. Because otherwise people presumably just shrug their shoulders. I mean, I wonder where, where, where is the quality of nature writing or the importance of nature writing in an inverse proportion to the direness of the environmental situation? As the situation gets wor- worse, it becomes more necessary for us to have good nature writers who are telling us what are the things we could come close to losing. That's an interesting question because I think that it's, that it's, that it's very much a two-edged sword, this is. It's very easy to become apocalyptic, you know, eco-catastrophic, and one can get very tired of these sort of vertiginous figures mm-hmm. that are produced about extinction rates and pollution levels and so forth. I think that the, the most interesting, the best, um, and certainly the most influential writers are the ones that really put it on the doorstep. They, they actually bring it home. And so that's why uh, 200 years ago, in the uh, fallout from, from Mount Tambora um, and the year without a summer. Um, on the one hand, you've got Byron writing his very dark biblical poem, Darkness, which has is, is really influenced this very gothic engagement with um, environmental catastrophe, all the way up to Cormac McCarthy um, and, and the road. On the other hand, you have John Keats, complaining about the rain because it's the wrong sort of rain <laughs> he's in Devon and it's raining every day he can't go out and he says but it's a very sort of heavy sort of rain you know it's not one that refreshes you it's one which is monotonous and it's very lowering um, to the spirits and so what he's doing he's, he's actually reflecting um, I think on that environmental uh, catastrophe but in a way which is very much about that everyday lived experience. Rather than thinking about the end of the world, he's thinking about the fact he can't go on a walk. And that's interesting. So you, you mentioned this notion, or I mentioned it, and you bet it's the sort of beginning of your review about rewilding, this uh, idea that we have to get back to a sense of that, because we all live in air-conditioned, drive-around air-conditioned cars, we live in houses which are removed from the environment we might live as I do in a city, so we're completely removed from the natural world. What does rewilding mean to you? You talked about the sort of teen fantasies of George Monbiot, which, from what I can recall, seems to revolve around him releasing wolves into Scotland. Yes. Uh, but it's pro- I'm sure it's more complicated than that. But there is presumably this sort of slightly apocalyptic view, which is we better start releasing wolves versus what these books seem to embody, which is let's recognise what we've got and try and preserve. Well, as you were saying earlier, you know, the, um, the, the landscape, particularly in England, is one that's been farmed uh, for centuries. Um, and I think one of the problems um, is the fact that there aren't enough sheep anymore. Certainly national parks um, like Dartmoor are becoming infested with bracken, they're becoming overrun with bracken. In, in, in the 20 years that I've lived there, there's been a, a huge shift um, in what used to be a very diverse uh, flora and fauna to the bracken monoculture, which doesn't support uh, very much at all. And one of the reasons for that is, is there aren't enough sheep being grazed um, through uh, through common rights, so the sheep would, would would trample down the bracken. They would they would manure. They would sort of, sort of uh, help really to to maintain a much more diverse ecosystem there. Um, so because the landscape has been managed for centuries, I think we need to to continue that management 
in terms of what's gone before, making big shifts by introducing charismatic creatures um, such as such as wolves, which are very exciting. You know, people want to have wolves howling um, and so forth. They also steal so babies foxes. from their cribs yeah. and so forth. So many foxes in London. Well, well too many know. foxes. I mean, foxes, you know, they are vermin and they, they need to be controlled and they don't need to be exterminated. Uh, but anybody who's, who's kept chickens and had them taken by foxes is going to have a different view from yeah, the... Right. Uh, mm. uh, from, from some other people. But I think that it's really the tip of the iceberg. I mean, wolves, beavers, you know, why not introduce bears or, you know. <laughs> can, can I just <laughs> But the thing is, we, we, we need to think about continuing farming practices that have actually created the landscape that we wish to live in, and more importantly, that we wish to bequeath to the next generation. And this is, is I don't think that for many people this is an agri-business, industrialised farming landscape. It's one that consists of hedgerows and a great variety of birds and insects and flowers um, and wildlife. Were you just about to defend Sorry, I, w- I was about to defend uh, George Monbiot. I mean, I don't particularly know about the ins and outs of it, but uh, but he, I have read a definition that he's given that sounds quite reasonable, but I suppose what you're saying is it doesn't mean rewilding. We're not going to, there, there's no natural natural state we can go back to realistically. No, there isn't. And, and as you say no, in, in the book about the hedgerows, we say, oh, hedgerows are wonderful because they've got so much diversity, but they were abounding of yes. the land. That was people yes. saying, that was already at the time, people saying, well, this is shrinking the flora and fauna. The, 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 this this is one of the great ironies. Yeah. I think that the hedgerows being so distinctive um, and being wonderful mm. um, havens uh, for wildlife, you know, many of them at the same time are evidence of the privatisation of land through enclosure. Yeah. Um, and so this is actually radically, it radically changed those sorts of environments and ecosystems from one that were, that, that were commonly farmed and more importantly perhaps were open to everybody um, into, in, into, into spaces that were closed. Mm. And so in fact the Black Act of 1723 made it a capital offence to damage a boundary tree. Mm. This is extraordinary. You know, so what, what, one, one could actually, you know, yeah, exactly what had been common land, yeah. it then became not only illegal to trespass, but potentially fatal. And there were dozens, scores um, of um, new capital offences uh, put on the put on the statute books, designed to control poaching and so forth. So poaching a rabbit uh, was a capital offence. Even blacking one's face because one might be going poaching was also a capital offence. Uh, which is one of the reasons why that is then, you know, it's an act of remembrance by later protesters and performers uh, to do that. I, I think we're going to have to leave it here, but uh, what I think is so, so lovely about your piece and, and the ideals you were kind of talking about, you've got to kind of blend, haven't you, pragmatism, an appreciation for what's there and what is possible. There is no point in pretending, as Lucy says, there's a prelapsarian no, world no. we can recover, but that doesn't mean we say we trample over everything. We just, we need to celebrate what's there, create a, a situation in which what is there can flourish and grow, but not be so downhearted that we shrug our shoulders and say the environmental battle is completely lost. It's not completely lost. Um, we shouldn't be sentimental about it either. Um, and as you say, I mean, we, we shouldn't be looking back to some to some golden age. What we should be thinking about this is that a lot of this is immaterial culture. It's to do uh, with attitudes through uh, families and through communities, through uh, customs, uh, through traditions, through all sorts of little bits of, uh, of folklore that are intimately connected. Um, 
um, to uh, the things, to the creatures um, and, the, and the plants. And we should be thinking about where this is going. We should be thinking about the future. So this notion of environmental heritage is one that's very forward-looking, um, I think. We need to think about where we're going to take it. And I think that these books are very um, suggestive and inspiring about how we can take this forward. Well, Nick, it's a very, it's a very suggestive and inspiring review. Uh, we're very grateful uh, for you for doing it. It's the cover piece of this week's uh, TLS, and thank you so much for doing it, and thank you for coming in today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That's almost all we have time for this week. Many thanks go to Lucy, of course, for stepping in, and to Mark Bostridge, Nick Groom and Mary Beard, whom I may or may not be allowed to call the Beard. Do you have a view on that? I think probably not. We have a no, no from Lucy. Thea said no as well, interestingly enough. Uh, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on other cultural subjects. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we have discussed today, plus Ian Wilson on a notably sexless Victorian family, Michael Saylor on The Slippery Truths of John le Carré, Ian Sansom on post-war female suspense fiction, Gillian Tyndall on the realistic ghost stories of Rachel Ferguson and Ros Caveney on the David Bowie musical Lazarus. You can visit our website the-tls.co.uk to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions and do come back daily to the site for new original pieces from TLS writers including all our reaction to the American election president-elect Donald Trump it still sounds odd to say Mary Wellesley on The Crown the Netflix show we've been talking about just then and Lydia Davis answering 20 questions you can follow us on Twitter like us on Facebook and please do review us on iTunes if you have a moment until next week when we shall return for more of the same only a little bit different goodbye A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.